Dear people of God, let me encourage you to turn with me this morning to the Old Testament Psalter, the book of Psalms, uh, the 42nd and the 43rd Psalm. These two Psalms are probably, indeed possibly, one Psalm rather than two. They constitute one Psalm in many Hebrew Bibles, many Hebrew versions of the Bibles. And these two Psalms speak to us of spiritual despondency. And spiritual despondency, I think, is something sometimes Christians are reluctant to speak about, especially if you're feeling despondent and dispirited. Often it's the last thing that you want other Christians to be aware of. And sometimes it's because you're aware or think that other Christians will be less than sympathetic with you, that perhaps maybe you tried to share your spiritual despondency with someone in the past and it was met with something like, snap out of it. After all, you're a Christian, are you not? You ought not to be the way that you are. And that kind of response only succeeds in making you feel even more despondent and more reluctant to share your spirit of dispiritedness or depression. Well, these two psalms speak to us this morning of a man of God who found himself in the depths of despondency. And in the very subscription of the psalm itself, we're told that this psalm is a mascal. A mascal, you'll notice from the heading, uh, that word comes from a Hebrew verb, the root of which means to instruct or to make wise. And so the psalmist wants to instruct us, not in how to become despondent, mind you, but in how to deal with our despondency. And he wants to make us wise Christian believers. So let's read the 42nd Psalm. And although I will not read the 43rd Psalm at this time, we will be dealing with both of these Psalms this morning. So hear the word of God as it comes to us from the 42nd Psalm. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God, or when shall I see God's face? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with a throng and lead them in procession, to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil or disquieted within me? Hoping God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mizor. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. 
By day the Lord commands steadfast or kessed love. And at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hoping God, for I shall again praise him my salvation, and my God. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Would you be so kind as to join me in prayer that you would pray with me and for me that the Lord might speak to us in this, the ministry of his word. Let us pray. O oh, Holy Father, as we bow before you this day, we are conscious, O oh Lord, of our other inability to open your word and to speak accordingly as we ought. And Father, we sense, therefore, our, our need to cry out to you for your gracious assistance, for the sending forth of your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we would cry out to you that he may come in copious measures upon all of your dear people. And, Father, that you would be pleased to do what no human can possibly do, namely to drive home to our hearts with power your own truth. And so we cry out to you, O oh God, as humbly as we know how. And we do so in the name of the one who loved us and gave himself for us, even Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. The book of Psalms depict for us many different colors of the believing life. I think I've mentioned it here before that John Calvin describes the book of Psalms as an anatomy of all parts of the soul. For, he says, there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. In other words, in the book of Psalms, we see, you and I, a reflection of the believing life. We see the believing life at its best, and we see the believing life as well at its worst. We see the believing life riding, as it were, on the heights of joy. And we see the believing life in the very darkest of dark valleys. And what we learn, not just from the book of Psalms, mind you, but from the whole of Holy Scripture, is that the life of faith, is not an even, untroubled life. It is a life oftentimes marked by seasons that penetrate our souls with darkness. And so we come and have this spiritual communion with the psalmist as he writes, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Or why he, 
Or as he cries in the 43rd Psalm, why have you rejected me? Here is a man who has found himself in the other depths. And he lays bare his despondent heart before God in prayer. And there is something wonderfully reassuring about the Bible when, when we read of the, the experiences of eminent believers, men and women. And we find that there is a realism in the Bible that we don't often see in the Christian world. Why is that? It's because there's no pretense. None whatsoever. There's no attempt at pretending to be more than what men and women really are. They do not attempt to put some kind of veneer of respectability or pretended piety over the surging despondencies that can, like wave after wave, break over the very souls, as the psalmist puts it. Here's a man you'll notice in these two psalms. And very clearly, this is a man of God, if ever there was one. This is not a backslidden Christian. This is not a man who has grievously sinned before God. And who now finds himself in the depths due to his own sin. No, here is an authentic servant of God. And yet look at how he describes himself in verse 6. That his soul is downcast. In verses 1 and 2, he likens himself to a parched deer. Panting for streams of water. You can almost hear and feel the parchedness. Of his soul. He is dry. He's desperate for communion with God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before or literally see God's face? And then we find him in the opening verses of the 43rd Psalm as a man who is perplexed. Look at verse 2. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why, he asked, have you rejected me? He cannot marry what he knows to be true with what he feels to be true. There's this confusion in his own mind. And yet throughout both Psalms, you cannot miss the hopeful notes that he strikes time and time again. Here is a man who is talking with his own soul, who has entered into dialogue, if you please, with his own soul. As Spurgeon puts it, his faith reasons with its fears and his hope argues with his sorrows. You see it, for example, in verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his salvation. And the psalmist is saying to us here, let me share with you the despondency that overwhelmed my soul. And let me show you how by God's grace I then sought to cope with the black bile of despondency. Now I want to underscore, and you have the outline in your bulletins, some four things about these two psalms. We're going to look at the reality of spiritual despondency, the reasons for it, secondly, 
Thirdly, the indications of spiritual despondency. And then last of all, what is the antidote that the psalmist offers for this despondency? So the first thing then, very simply and briefly, I want to point out the reality of spiritual despondency. The fifth verse of the 42nd Psalm, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil or disquieted within me? Now, I have met Christians over the years who give the impression that spiritual despondency ought never to be the part or lot of a believer's experience. If you're in the depths, they say it's because you're choosing to be in the depths. You have sinned and you find yourself, therefore, in the depths. Or you have this temperamental inclination to the depths. Now, I have no doubt that some people are temperamentally inclined to the depths. And I have no doubt, as we shall see in a few moments, that sin is perhaps often the reason why people find themselves in the depths. But here in these two psalms, there is no sense that the psalmist has sinned as such and for that reason has found himself where he is. Rather, here is a man, for whatever reasons... And we're not, well, there are some hints here, but we're not told explicitly what those reasons are. But he finds himself separated from the people of God. He is at a distance from the fellowship of the saints. And you see in verse 4 that he finds himself in this state of spiritual despondency. Now, spiritual despondency is an experience, I am insisting, that is native to authentic Christianity this side of glory. We find that some of the most eminent of God's servants have found themselves at times languishing in the depths. And as I said, we need but think of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who on the cross could cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken? Why have you abandoned me? Perhaps echoing something of the words of the psalmist in the 43rd Psalm. Why have you rejected me? And because our Lord Jesus Christ is the great prototypical man of faith. He is the man of faith and sinless though he was. He found himself in the depths crying out to his father in heaven. So there's the reality of spiritual despondency. But notice with me, secondly, if you would, in this psalm we see the reasons for his spiritual despondency. And as I mentioned, oftentimes sin itself can be the very reason why believers find themselves in the depths. But listen to Psalm 32 the psalm from which we had our call to worship this morning. Again, it's a psalm of David. And again, in the subscription, it's described to us as a mascal. When I kept silent, verse 3, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I will confess, he prays, my transgressions to the Lord And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then the psalmist there goes on to pray. You are my hiding place. 
You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. There are times when sin is the reason for where we are. And it needs to be brought to the Lord, brought to the light, freely confessed and repented. And and that the light of God's countenance might once again shine upon us. Or it may be that Satan is behind the depths into which we've been plunged. Think of Job, for instance. An enemy has done this. And oftentimes it can be the fact that Satan, the great enemy of our soul, has been responsible under the sovereign overseeing providences and purposes of God of being allowed to lead us into the depths. Satan seeking thereby to crush us, but God seeking thereby to refine us, as Job confessed. But he knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. But here in these Psalms, there is no evidence whatsoever that either sin or Satan as such are behind the depths in which the psalmist finds himself. I think there are rather some three reasons at least which the psalmist himself underscores in these psalms. Please look at them with me together. There's the clear suggestion here that he is despondent because he himself has been cut off from the means of grace. Verse 4 of Psalm 42, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. But now, as we learn from verse 6, he finds himself in the land of of the Jordan, and from the heights of Hermon, and from the hill Mizar. Perhaps he's been sent into exile. He's become dislocated for what, uh, whatever reason from the fellowship of the saints. He's become separated from the church of God, and he is no longer able to go to the altar of God to behold, as it were, the face of God. And so he's been cut off from the means of grace. And dear people, when you are cut off from the means of grace, it is no wonder that a spirit of despondency and disquietedness then begins to settle in your soul. But then secondly, under the reasons for his despondency, here is a man who was facing, you'll notice, unrelenting, hostile circumstances. Look at verse 3. My tears, he says, have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Continually, all day long, hour after hour, hostile men are mocking him, deriding him. And he languishes under these attempts to bring him down. Where is your God? We've seen no deliverance for you while you pray day after day. Your God doesn't care and your God doesn't hear. Where is your God? You see the same thing in verse 10. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taught me. 
while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? In the opening verse of the 43rd Psalm, vindicate me, he prays, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. They appear to be heathens and they've surrounded him. He's in the midst of their environment and Once again, they are highlighting his separation from the covenant people of God. Day after day, facing unrelenting, hostile circumstances that can be so utterly wearing out of the soul that it begins to ground his soul into the dust. But then there's a third reason, I think, why he is as he is And I would say you see it again in verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Now, a number of other translations all indicate that he himself led this procession to the house of God. Here is a man who, is, who has a lost role, as it were. He was once a leader among the people of God, but now he has a lost role, and that in itself can be a desolating experience. Think of a missionary who has served on a foreign field for many years, laboring in the work of the gospel. And then he comes home. He feels like he has a lost role. No longer does he have that ministry. It's gone. Or let me bring this even closer to home. Think of a mother who has raised children in her home. Think of the darlings of her bosom. And then they begin to leave one by one. And they go off to college and They enter in life on their own. Perhaps they marry. Think of it, 20, 25 years, maybe longer. She has cared for her children. She has loved and provided for her children. But now that whole dimension of her life is gone and her whole sense of identity with it. Think of that despondency over such a lost role. And you can multiply that, I think, throughout life. And the lost role can be in itself the very means of bringing despondency into our soul. Now, the point is that there can be many reasons, dear people, for spiritual despondency. Many causes why we find ourselves at times in the depths. And that's why we need to treat this malady of the soul so wisely, thoughtfully, and not treat other believers in a careless way when they find themselves in the depths. But then thirdly, as I hurry on, I want you to notice the indications of spiritual despondency. And I want to make this point for the following reason. Sometimes I think, and perhaps to our shame, that We as ministers can give the impression that we're the pastoral experts and that we should be on top of things. And I think 
maybe it's true that we give that impression at times. Now, in one sense, that's true, that pastors have been set apart to give themselves wholly, entirely to the pastoral care of God's people. But on the other hand, I want you to listen, for example, what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 14. There he says, now we exhort or we encourage you, brethren. He's not addressing elders or pastors. There he's addressing his brethren. Warn those or admonish those who are unruly. Other translations say disorderly or who are idle. Comfort the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Be patient, he says, with all. You see, the pastoral care of the saints was not relegated exclusively to the pastors and the elders. Paul is addressing the brethren there. Pastors and elders do in terms of their office what every Christian ought to do in terms of common Christian charity. What every believer does simply out of the impulse of love is simply what every pastor and elder ought to do under the impulse not only out of love but of God-ordained responsibility. But all of us have that responsibility and therefore we all need to be looking for indications in our brethren of spiritual despondency and be alert to those. And I think there can be a plaintive longing, first of all, as an indication. Look at verses 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. You find people who've become dispirited and despondent. And you note it when you see this plaintive note that is creeping into their lives. They're not where they want to be. And there is a felt sense of absence from the very presence of God. There is this plaintive longing. And then secondly, another indication, there are tears. The psalmist readily confesses them. My tears have been my food day and night. I don't know how many people over the years I've met who are despondent and almost uniformly you are made aware that tears have been the portion of their lives virtually every day because there's this malady of the soul. Their soul is out of sorts, if you please. And in verse 10, we see that there can be bodily pains accompanying as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. You see, you and I are psychosomatic beings. In other words, we're not disembodied souls. We're souls with body. And the Christian hope is not simply the immortality of the soul, but the resurrection of the body with the soul. That is the ultimate Christian hope. We're integrated beings and therefore our whole being is affected. His pain goes all the way to the bone. And then there's an anguished perplexity. Look at verse 9 of Psalm 42. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. 
anguished perplexity, people who are unable to make sense of their circumstances. And then there is also, you notice, an absence from public worship. We're not told why this son of Korah, one of the Levites, was where he was. But he's become distanced and separated from the fellowship of the people of God. And dear people, when people begin to absent themselves from the worship of God, I can tell you it is a sign that all is not well with their soul. These are signs to which we need to be alert, you and I. So then, we've looked at the reality of spiritual despondency, some of the reasons, some of the indications of spiritual despondency, but then, fourthly, and in the final part, I want to, and this is really the burden of my concern this morning, I want us to notice the psalmist's antidote, his cure, his remedy for this spiritual despondency. He wants to instruct us. Remember, this is a mascal. He wants to make us wise. So how does he do it? Well, he tells us three things that he himself did. And we find them here in the Psalms. First of all, he refocused his thinking. Secondly, he refocused his prayer. And then in the third place, he focused his vision. Let's look very briefly at each of these. First of all, he refocused his thinking. We see it in verses 5 and verse 11 of the 42nd Psalm, as well as in verse 5 of the 43rd Psalm. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, he says, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now, what is the psalmist saying here? Well, he's not suggesting that his despondency is an illusion or that it's not real. No. Why are you cast down? Shake out of it. No, he's not saying that at all. What he is saying to himself is this. He is saying that his despondency is is not ultimately invincible to the one whose hope has been placed in God. One of the old Puritans puts it this way. He said, David chideth David out of the dumps in many of his psalms. And here it is one of the sons of Korah who is chiding himself, but reminding himself no less that his despondency is not ultimately invincible to the one whose hope is in God. You see, he realizes that really the battle is for the mind here. Why are you cast down, O my soul? There are many reasons why. And he says, hope in God. He will deliver you because God is greater than all your despondencies, all your depressions. All of your dispiritedness and all the black bile of your melancholy that may be overwhelming you. God is greater. Put your hope in God. For I shall yet, I shall again 
praise him, the psalmist sings. Here is a man, you'll notice, who determines to think first theologically and not experientially. He's looking at God rather than his circumstances. He battles to see his experience in the light of what he knows to be true of God. And it comes out in this psalm even to the point you'll notice in verse 7 that he sees his sore trials as ultimately from God himself. Deep calls unto deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and waves have gone over me. So here's a man who refocuses his thinking and who sees that all of his life is overseen by his sovereign Lord who is able to deal with his despondencies. He's refocused his thinking. And so often, this too is what you and I need to do. Learn to think theologically. Learn to think Christologically. That is, be Christ-centered in our thinking. But then secondly, he does this. He refocused his prayer. Do you notice that the tone of the psalm begins to change in the 43rd psalm in verse 3? There he prays, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. What is the psalmist doing there? He's asking God to shed the light of his truth in the midst of the darkness that is swallowing up his soul. He is crying out to God and he is asking God to send out his life or his truth. Or it could be translated, or send out your truth that brings light. Oh, Lord, let your truth shine in my darkness, he prays. And when spiritual ailments come upon us, we're to go, you and I, to the pharmacy of God's truth and apply that medicine to our soul, the medicine that comes from the Holy Scriptures. Your words were found, prayed Jeremiah, and I ate them, and your word was to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God Sabaoth, O Lord God of hosts. We need to store up and feed ourselves from the word of God and allow its light to come into our darkness. Our Lord Jesus said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And one of the battles in dealing with despondency is to keep reading and hearing the word of God. That's one of the great battles, I am convinced. Here is a man who refocused his prayer. He saw from where light would come, and it would come from God's truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me. And then thirdly, last of all, he refocused his vision. He looked within. He's looked around. 
But now do you notice in verse 4 of Psalm 43, he resolves to go himself to the very altar of God. Then he says, I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with a lyre. I will praise you with a harp, O God, my God. Do you see what's transpiring there? He's looking forward and he's daring to lay hold of a future. You see, our despondencies would tell us that we should never dare think of a future. But the word of God encourages us, you and I, time and time again, to view our present in the light of the eternal. Scripture does that repeatedly. And this, the psalmist dares to lay hold of a better future while he languishes in the very depths. He's away on the heights of Hermon. And he's far off from the fellowship of God. God's waves and billows, he prays, have swept over him. But he dares to look forward. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God, my exceeding joy. And on the lyre or on the harp, I will praise you, O God, my God. One of the great battles in despondency is to believe that there is a better future in store. It's one of the great notes of Paul's life, is it not? For he says in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, And his afflictions were not light, but he prays for our light affliction. And Paul had many troubles And yet, he says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Or perhaps another place. Think of Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. There where the psalmist says, for I reckon or I consider that the difficulties or the afflictions of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. The psalmist is saying to us, I dare to lay hold of a better future. Whenever you face trial, whenever you feel yourself overwhelmed in the depths and you can be sure that the enemy of your soul will then be saying with everything in him life's bleak for you you have nothing in store for you you have nothing to which to look forward to dear people it is not some pie in the sky by and by theology when we say that there's a day coming when we will be in the presence of the king of the universe and we will enjoy him forever our despondencies would say you have no future to which to look and yet god says you have it and it's been won for you in the blood of Jesus. This is the teaching of Scripture. And when our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, entered our humanity as our covenant head, he was not excused.
from identifying with God's people in every way in the depths, only with one exception, he never sinned. He was not excused from identifying with God's people in the depths. Indeed, he entered into the despondency and the deep discouragements of his own soul in this fallen world. He has walked where we walked, and God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, this was our Lord Jesus. And no one can say to our Lord Jesus, at least honestly, you don't understand It would be almost blasphemous to think in such a way, far less to say it. He has entered into our depths and will never through all the ages of eternity begin to begin to fathom what it meant for the holy, sinless Son of God to undergo what he went through in this world on our behalf. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, as we come to a close this morning, as he says to us all, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. He is able to meet us in our needs where we are. He is able to come to us in our despondencies, for he is the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. Spiritual despondency is not something that can be easily equated with God's people having gone wrong spiritually. It may be that there are lessons that can only be learned by treading through the black bile of dark valleys in this life. Only in heaven will we be able to look back and to say, Lord, you have done all things well. Even when your waves and billows were breaking over my head, what you were doing was for my good and for your glory. May God encourage us through the light of his word to lay hold of the sure and certain hope of a better day, which has been procured and secured in us, for us in the person of God's own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.